So I, I want to give a talk that I give every couple of years, and it's just such a wonderful story um, that I like retelling it. And when you hear stories like this, this is an ancient story from India, um, even though you may have heard it before, it also gives you a, a, a kind of mirror to reflect about your own experience in your life. So many Buddhist texts begin with the greeting, um, O nobly born, or you who are the sons and daughters of the Buddhas, of the awakened ones, remember your true nature, remember who you really are. And so there's something quite beautiful about this reminder to us. Um, and I've talked about this over the weeks in the class here and months. Um, but there's a way of misunderstanding it that can lead to a kind of complacency, if you will. Even though there is this Buddha nature that's beautiful and wise in us, um, Suzuki Roshi put it this way, Zen Master Suzuki Roshi. He said, you're perfect just the way you are, but I love you too much to let you stay that way. <laughs> so there's this interesting paradox and tension in spiritual life, which includes um, the deep bow of recognition of who we really are, our original goodness and the great heart of compassion that there that lies in every single being, um, and at the same time, um, the genuinely demanding journey, if you will, to embody that, to bring it out in the fullest way. So I start with a poem from Mary Oliver, some of you may know. One day you finally knew what you had to do and began though the voices around you kept shouting their bad advice, though the whole house began to tremble and you felt the old tug at your ankles, mend my life, they cried, each one. But you didn't stop. You knew what you had to do, though the wind pried with its stiff fingers at the very foundations, though their melancholy was terrible. It was already late enough, and a wild night, and the road full of fallen branches and stones. But little by little, as you left their voices behind, the stars began to burn through the sheets of clouds, and there was a new voice which you slowly recognized as your own that kept you company as you strode deeper and deeper into the world, determined to do the only thing you could do, determined to save the only life that you could save. So it's a very demanding poem in a way, not demanding in its meaning, um, in the sense of understanding it, but demanding in what it reminds us of or asks us of, or asks of us. And so tonight I want to talk about this journey, if you will, from the small sense of self, from the limited ways we know ourselves to be, to embodying the great compassion and wisdom that is our true nature. And use this ancient story from India of a young man named Nachiketa, who um, 
illustrates this talk, illustrates this journey. It's really a story about initiation, and as best as I can tell, spiritual life or human life, if we're awakening, is punctuated by initiations, which is to say, you don't become an initiated person, you become a person who goes through a series of initiations at different stages of life. And entering the monastery, the traditional initiation practice in Thailand and Burma and Laos and so forth, one um, goes through the gates. Usually there's demons guarding the gates of the temple, and then you have to go through these gates. And there's a whole initiation for a young man who would go in from the almost every part of the society to spend three months or six months or a year in the temple, um, shave their heads, live in the very simplest way in the forest, go out and um, collect alms food and you know sit in the charnel grounds and meditate on death and go out in the woods and meditate with the tigers and the things that I've talked about in the last few weeks. All of it really to find some new way of being that is fearless and courageous and wise. Now, of course, when I tell this story, it seems very exotic. Okay, I'm going to go, you know, to Tibet or Laos or something and become a nun or a monk and live out in the jungle where there are tigers. But it turns out you don't have to do that. You could come on a retreat at Spirit Rock, come on our two-month retreat, and you know, in a way there's an initiation because you leave your wallet and presumably your makeup and your identity and your Palm Pilot and your email and stuff behind, and there you are somewhat naked, if you will, compared to your ordinary life, and then what you have to face is yourself. Or you don't even have to come to Spirit Rock. There's a Greek word for what happens to us periodically. The word is katabas, and it means a blow. And so there you are, kind of tootling along in your life, thinking you know what's supposed to happen, and all of a sudden the phone rings, you know, and someone that you know or yourself gets a diagnosis of cancer or something like it. Or maybe the partner that you've lived with for a while says, um, honey, I've decided to leave, you know. And you say, how come you never said anything about this? And the next thing you know, you're in the midst of some terrible divorce. Or maybe there's something else that awakens the greatness in you. Um, you see the salmon coming up Lagunitas Creek and know that they're endangered and then there may no be no more salmon in California if somebody doesn't do something, or you see what's happening in Richardson Bay, you know, or you start a company and it succeeds. Ha! Not even the failure, it succeeds. And then you have to pass it on or get it to work, you know, for somebody else. Or maybe it's the birth of a grandchild. But something happens that awakens the greatness in our being. Could you turn the sound up a tiny bit more? And whatever it is, um, that starts the next cycle of your initiation, which is to say that you become greater, wiser, fuller through that, through this blow or this um, demand or this circumstance that you decide to do something about.
Now, a long time ago, when you were much younger than you are tonight, there was in India a young man named Nachiketa, whose father was a very wealthy merchant. But he was getting old. And as old people sometimes do, he began to think about the afterlife. Like, what's going to happen to me when I die? And so he went to the temple and talked to the priests there, as he got nervous about his eternal soul, basically, and said, is there anything that I can do, you know, to help? I mean, I've done well in this life. Is there anything I can do to help um, carry some of this forward in the future lives? And these particular priests, perhaps not unfamiliar to the way religion goes, said, sure, you could make a really big donation to the temple, and this would help your soul, you know, in the next life or two very well. Lots of good karma, right? And so he, uh, Nachiketa's father, decided he, he was going to live very simply in the last few years of his life, and he made a huge ceremony in the middle of the town, and he brought all his wealth and carts and all his cattle and all the things that he had, and invited everyone, and the priests of the temple were there, and he was going to give all this to the temple as the story went. And as he was in the middle of this ceremony, this ritual, kind of full of himself a little bit, you might be able to picture this philanthropist and egotism kind of somehow mixed together, he said, here I am, this great man of the community, and I give all I value to the temple. Now his son was sitting there, Nachiketa, and you know how our children are. They kind of look at us with perhaps not the same ideas about us as we have about ourselves. And uh, his son could see the emptiness of this gesture in some way, the hypocrisy of it, um, that you don't you know, get salvation by making some big donation to the church or the temple or Spirit Rock, for that matter. Um, yes, we'd like it, of course, right? We'll <laughs> accept it. But um, it, you can't buy it in that way. You can't buy liberation and freedom and awakening in, in that fashion. And he saw the hypocrisy in organized religion, which there is, you know, that was 2,000, 3,000 years ago. But it's not really different than these days. Remember the story of um, W.C. Fields when he was dying? You know, and he was a really um, adamant atheist through most of his life and made fun of religion. And apparently he was in his hospital room, and a friend came in and saw him there um, leafing through the Bible. And he said, W.C., what are you doing? I thought you were, you know, you didn't care about any of this. And he said, look, he said I'm just looking for loopholes here. <laughs> but any young person or anyone whose eyes are open can see the hypocrisy in our times, just as Nachiketa saw it there. Um, I sometimes read this passage from Izvestia, which was the government newspaper in Russia that in um, 1989 published a front page article 
that said this, uh, the, um, history textbooks had taught generations of Soviet children lies that poisoned their minds and souls, and therefore the government was canceling the final history exams for more than 53 million students. The guilt of those who deluded one generation after another, poisoning their minds and souls with lies, is immeasurable, and who are reaping the bitter fruits of it and do not know how to answer our children honestly. Imagine that. So, um, there was a society of hypocrisy, but it's not just the Soviet Union, as we know. We can look at the huge buildup of prisons, these racist poverty prisons, and see um, the insanity of it, where we're spending more money on our prison system. We have more people incarcerated, more money on our prisons than on our schools. Or we can look at the you know war on terror, a very strange set of words put together, actually, making war on war, right? Okay, we'll figure that one out. Um, as if that will bring security, when most of what's being put out in the political sphere from all different sides, Democrat, Republican, whatever, is based on the illusion of security, fear-mongering and, sec- and the illusion of security. I mean, that's not the way that one becomes secure, uh, individually or as a nation. Um, where are we here? The people you have to lie to own you. The things you have to lie about own you. When your children see you owned, they are not your children anymore. They are the children of what owns you. If money owns you, they are the children of money. If your need for pretense and illusion owns you, they are the children of pretense and illusion. If your fear of loneliness owns you, they are the children of loneliness. If you fear, if your fear of truth owns you, they are the children of the fear of truth. And so we see, in some way, as Nachiketa did, the kind of hypocrisy around us. And then some moment comes we say, I'm not going to go along with the babble and the outer hypocrisy anymore. There's some other way to live, more genuine, more true, more honest, and I'm simply going to do this. So this is what Nachiketa said to his father. You give all you value to the temple. What about me? You didn't give me to the temple. Isn't there something else you value beside your money? And his father was so insulted by this comment, publicly humiliated by his son, that he turned to Nachiketa and he said, in the most colloquial fashion, go to hell. But since, and that wasn't the phrase in that particular Sanskrit at the time, <laughs> the, the, the equivalent of that phrase was, um, I give you, I give you to death. Like, go to hell. And Nachiketa said, fine, I accept. And this begins the story. And Nachiketa turned around and said, My father sends me to death. I'll see about this death thing. Let me face death. Let me see if there is something to learn here. So this is really what a young man does in a certain way. This is one part of initiation. Young men come and they say, Is there anything dangerous to do around here? Basically, right? I want to do that. So I can prove myself. 
It's the way, and if it's not done in a ritual way, then it's done in the streets with guns or drugs or something, because people have to be initiated, even if they don't know how to do it. Um, There was a conference in New York that some friends of mine were part of, put on by the New York State Legislature, um, because some of the people in the city began to recognize that the tattoos, the language, the the, um, rituals of the gang, the street gangs, were uh, initiation rituals, um, uh, failed initiation rituals in a certain way. And they wanted to look for what can we do that will make a legitimate initiation ritual. So this is not Chiketa. But of course, it's also important to see this is a kind of a, a male story facing death. You know, here is uh, Richard Baker Roshi um, from San Francisco's Zen Center. He used to say to his Zen students, if you're with someone who's dying and you're not willing to trade places with them at that very moment, then you're not really practicing Zen. There you are, face that. So when Isan Dorsey, one of his disciples who was the abbot in in the Castro at the Zen Center, was dying of AIDS, Dick Baker came to visit him and saying, I wish I could trade places with you right now. Don't worry, responded Isan, you'll get your chance. So, in one way, this is the facing of death, um, but in another way, we're each asked to face difficult things. The, the cancer of a friend, the loss of something that we've treasured, um, or even in the feminine form, I think about it, um, well, I'll come back to that. Nachiketa decided to face death in this way. He went out into the woods, and he said, I'm going to sit down for three days, sit down for as long as it takes until I meet death and not move. And he sat for three days and three nights without moving his body until death appeared. Um, I lived in some monasteries where we did practices, something like this, where you would sit for 24 hours and not move or stand in one place for 24 hours and go through all the pain and all the kinds of experiences and demons and things that came until you had mastered that posture until you weren't afraid of whatever would arise while you were in that posture. So this is what Nachiketa did. Um, and I think about it because my, my wife's labor for our daughter Caroline um, took three days and three nights. It was a really long labor because she had her contractions began, but the head wasn't properly engaged. And so there were all these contractions, and we'd go into the hospital, and they'd look, and they'd say, one centimeter, two centimeters, go back home, and spend 12 hours or 18 hours in contractions. And then she'd come back in the hospital and say, yeah, maybe two and a half centimeters, go back home. And it just went on and on and on. It seemed endless till the point you know, where she was falling asleep between the contractions after a couple of days and nights, and I was falling asleep too. And they'd go, like, okay, next contraction. Um, so you don't have to you know, go do the young man thing, you can just have a baby. That's another fine initiation. Whatever, there are a lot of forms of this. So Nachiketa decided to undertake something that was really difficult to face his life. Um, Again, from uh, Carlos Castaneda, who uh, writes, Death is our eternal companion. It has always been to our left at an arm's length. It has always been watching you, and it always will until the day it taps you. The thing to do when you're impatient 
is to turn to your left and ask advice from your death. An immense amount of pettiness is dropped if your death makes a gesture to you, or if you catch a glimpse of it, or if you simply catch the feeling that your companion is right there watching you. And so somehow, in this first step of initiation from the blow or the the thing that awakens something in us that says we need to live a fuller, greater way, there's a sense that no matter what happens, even in the face of death, I have to live a different way. And so Nachiketa did this. And after three days, it was like a descent, after three days, he found himself in the land of Lord Yama, the king of death. And this was like a descent, like Orpheus to the underworld or Inanna in the uh, um, uh, Babylonian Mesopotamian descent, the Iraqi descent, excuse me, that Inanna took. Let's be straight about this, right? And so there was Nachiketa. After three days and nights of not moving, death appeared. He was in the land of Lord Yama, and he said, I would like to see the king of death. And the person he met said, only his assistants are here, pestilence, aging, war, and famine. You could speak with them if you like. (laughs) Nachiketa said, nope, I will wait. And so he waited and waited. And finally, and he said, where is death? And they said, oh, he's out collecting rent, right? Which he does regularly. He said, I will wait. So when death returned, the uh, uh, assistants, pestilence, aging, war, and famine, said, you know, there's a young man who's come to see you, and he's quite unusual, because most people, when they get a sight of death, death, run the other way, right? But this young man wants to look you in the eye. He seems to be here on a purpose. And death said, oh, well, then I will go and see him. And he went up to Nachiketa, and he said, um, that young man, you have been waiting for me. And he said, yes, I have, three days and three nights. And death looked at him and said, my apologies. This is an unusual young man. My apologies be for, for being so late. Because you have, I have kept you waiting for these three days to make up for this, I will grant you three boons. I will give you three wishes. And a very interesting thing to death, for death to grant. So this is the next step in the story. So in a certain way, when we're about to when our life is about to change because something matters to us so much in this world or because we faced something that is so difficult, the fear will arise. And fear is just part of the game. It's okay. But there's something in us that stirs that says, I can live in a different way, a fuller, wiser, completer, wholer way. And the fear is just a kind of little membrane between us and this new possibility. In fact, the description best I like about fear, the membrane, it has a little sign on it that says, about to grow, right? When you're afraid, what it's really saying is something new and bigger is going to grow from this fear if you face it. So here's Nachiketa. Beg your pardon, I've kept you waiting. I offer you three boons, for I see you are a man on a journey. So what would you ask? You know, here's the, the Lord of Death and you can get three wishes. Nachiketa sat 
quietly, he'd learn to sit. He'd learn to center himself in those three days and nights in the way that one learns in meditation. All your thoughts and ambitions and fears and self-judgments and shame and, and, and uh, anger and all the stuff that comes and goes, comes. And you sit in the middle of it and become the witness to it all and say, yes, I can take this seat with full humanity. And he sat with this skill that he had learned to be present for a life and reflected. And then he asked for the first of his boons. I ask from you, because he was wise, I ask the gift of forgiveness. May my father see me as he did the day I was born. May I see myself that way, with innocence, and mercy and understanding. And there's some way in which Nachiketa understood that one cannot go on a great journey of awakening this heart of a Buddha or this beauty that's within us um, without the power of forgiveness and loving kindness. I mean, all the other efforts that you might have in spiritual life and in the growth of understanding and wisdom and care and, you know, patience and truthfulness and so forth, if the heart can't forgive, we're still back at square one in a certain way. And Nachiketa had this deep sense of this. May my father see me as he did the day I was born, because he could still feel how angry his father was at him. That started his journey. And you know it, your exes, remember them? Some of your cases, right? Or your siblings, or your parents, or your children, or, you know, those, whoever those other people are. Forgiveness for the journey is the act of letting go of the suffering of the past and our conflict with it, our hatred with it, so that we do not carry it forward, don't repeat it. And it's absolutely critical, whether it is in Northern Ireland between the Catholics and the Protestants, or whether it's in Rwanda or the Sudan, or whether it's between the Palestinians and the Israelis, or the Hatfields and the McCoys. If human beings do not learn how to forgive, which means to let go, we are chained to repeat the past over and over and over in suffering. So this is the first freedom that Nachiketa asked for. And as Longfellow wrote, if we could read the secret history of our enemies, we would see sorrow and suffering enough to disarm all hostility. If we could really look with the heart, with the heart of wisdom and wise eyes. This is Charles Lamb who said, don't introduce me to him when a friend offered to present a man whom Long had for a long time disliked and hated by hearsay. I want to go on hating him, and I can't do that to a man that I know. <laughs> so forgiveness is the first boon. And to forgive doesn't mean we condone what happened. We may say never again, I will not let this happen to myself or another party. It doesn't mean to say that it's okay. Forgiving isn't some quick thing where you paper over, oh, this happened, now I forgive you. It can be a long and deep process of grieving, of anger, of outrage, of sorrow. And there's a kind of honorableness to the grief. 
if you read Rilke's Sonnets to Orpheus and the whole descent of Orpheus going down to the underworld, like this story, trying to bring back Eurydice, um, Rilke writes of Orpheus bringing his lute, the, you know, the best musician on the planet, to play for the Lord of Death, a woman so loved that through his lute poured all the grief of the world. He played his lute, and the tears of missing his beloved were the tears of everyone who's ever suffered on the earth. And even death began to weep and said, okay, you can have her back, basically. But you can't look back. Well, that's the little, you know, little problem there, as we'll see later on. Um, forgiveness doesn't condone what happened, and it's not a quick papering over. It is, in the end, the willingness to not put another human being out of our heart. And it's not done so much for their sake, it's really done for our sake. It's the story I always tell of the two ex-prisoners of war, one who asks the other, have you forgiven your captors yet? And the first one says, no, never. And then the second one says, well, then they still have you in prison, don't they? <coughs> Forgiveness is really the release of what we carry. Oh, that my priest's robes were wide enough to gather up all the suffering people in this floating world, says the poet Leo Khan. To learn to forgive is really t the act of um, benediction, of blessing, of letting go, of starting anew. I was reading the biography, uh, autobiography of Queen Noor of Jordan, and she wrote about her relationship to the, to the king and how many times they were betrayed by different leaders in the Middle East doesn't just happen in the Middle East, that betrayal. It happens in our country, doesn't it? Huh? In our communities as well. And how each time her husband and she would talk and meditate and then decide that they were willing to start over even though they were terribly betrayed and forgive and try again because their vision was that somehow out of this something good would come. And it's so, such a deep gift to offer ourselves forgiveness, to receive it, to offer it to another. From the letters left at the Vietnam Veterans Memorial as an altar, Dear Sirs, for 22 years I have carried your picture in my wallet. I was only 18 years that day we faced one another on the trail in Chu Lai, Vietnam. Why you didn't take my life first, I'll never know. You stared at me so long pointing your gun, and yet you did not. Forgive me for taking yours. I was just reacting the way I was trained, to kill the enemy. And over the years, so many times, I've stared at this picture of you and your daughter. And each time my gut burns with the pain of guilt, for I have two daughters myself now. And I realize you were a brave soldier defending his homeland. Above all else, I can now deeply respect the importance that life must have held for you. I suppose that is why you held your fire, and I am here today. But twenty-two years later, it is time for me to continue this life and release the sorrow, the pain, and the guilt. I return your picture and ask one thing. Please, please forgive me.
It is not a small thing to offer forgiveness to yourself, to ask it, to give to another, and yet it has this tremendous power to open the heart, to let go of the sorrows of the past, to let us start anew. And this was Nachiketa's first boon and blessing in his journey. And the Lord of Death looked at him and said, You have chosen well, Nachiketa. What then will be your second boon? And again, Nachiketa sat, sat now with his heart touched by forgiveness, compassion, open, and realized that after forgiveness, what was required was the ability to enter life with this open heart fully and completely. And he said, I ask for the gift of fire, the gift of aliveness, a courage of heart. As Carl Jung says, the attainment of wholeness requires one to stake one's whole being. Nothing less will do. There can be no easier conditions, no substitutes, no compromises. You must show up fully. And so this is what Nachiketa asked for, a kind of spiritual energy, aliveness, sincerity, the, the capacity and courage to be present. Let's see. Here's the... Oh, yes. Go ahead. Light your candles. Burn your incense. Ring your bells and call out to the gods. But watch out, because the gods will come, and they will put you on their anvil and fire up their forge and beat you and beat you until they turn brass into pure gold. So be careful what you ask for. Here's Nachiketa asking for this. May I be given fire. May I be given aliveness. Which is to say, may I be given courage he could sense the possibility, as you can, of your own Buddha nature, of greater freedom and compassion and openness, no matter what, a kind of bravery. And he said, may I be granted this. You know, in certain temples and monasteries, they pray for difficulties. May I be granted suffering so that the great heart of compassion will really open within me. Doesn't sound like a Marin kind of thing, right? <laughs> May I have suffering and difficulties? But I tell you, when I go into San Quentin and talk with some of the men who've been there for 20 years, you know, got in there at 18 for doing something terrible and foolish and, you know, probably intoxicated when they did it, and they look back 20 or 25 years, and they're this entirely different person. I sometimes see people who have such big hearts and such understanding and such dignity for all that they've gone through, that they might not have learned any other way. A kind of bravery. You see it in Aung San Suu Kyi in Burma, and there she is, 15 years of house arrest, unable to see her children or her husband when he was dying of cancer, because if she left Burma, they would never let her back in. And she just stays there and says, this is my commitment. I don't do it for myself, I do it for us. 
So I heard recently from a woman who was on retreat when I was in Europe about a television special commemorating the 50th anniversary of the siege of um, Leningrad or St. Petersburg during the Second World War. Um, and one of the stories that was told there, three years the city of Leningrad was um, surrounded by the German army, the Nazi army, um, and 700,000 people died in the siege of Leningrad. And harsh winters, terrible, terrible. And they were interviewing people who'd been through it. And at one point there was an old woman, kind of fragile old woman who came on the camera. And she talked about getting back her hope. She said she was there going through the siege. So many people were dying and she'd really given up hope. And she was an 11-year-old girl and her mother sent her out to get in line and wait all morning to get the small portion of bread that you were given as a kind of... Um, a ration that was distributed to people for her mother and her brother and herself. And after she got the bread and she was walking back, a little ways back, she slipped in the street and fell into this big mud puddle and the bread fell into it and got filled with muddy water. It was useless. And she said she was sitting there in shock, kind of suffocating, because it would just mean more hunger for herself and her mother and her brother. Didn't know if she could tolerate it. And then a woman from across the street saw her and walked to her side of the street and took out the bread that she'd just received as a ration and tore off most of it and put it in this girl's hands. And now the old woman stood up, the camera was in her house, and got, went to her cupboard and took out a china box. And out of that box she took a small bundle and unfolded it, and in it, was part of that piece of bread that she'd kept for 50 years. And she said, this is what gave me hope for all those years of the war, this piece of bread, that someone would do that. So this is really what Nachiketa was asking for. He could feel in himself, as you can, the nobility and dignity and possibility of courage and wakefulness. And he said, may I be given this in my life? May I live from this place? And of course, it doesn't just happen once. Suzuki Roshi says, it's like baking your bread. You put it in the oven again and again and again, and you start wherever you are. It's not like you have this great infusion. It's really why one meditates, to refine and re-remember and reawaken this beauty. Annie Lamott writes, 30 years ago, my older brother who was 10 years old at the time, was trying to get a report on birds written that he had three months to write. It was due the next day. <laughs> we were out at our family cabin in Bellinas, and he was at the kitchen table close to tears, surrounded by binder papers and pencils and unopened books on birds, immobilized by the hugeness of the task ahead. And then my father sat down beside him, put his arm around my brother's shoulder, and said, Bird by bird, buddy. Just take it bird by bird. <laughs> but this is it, you know. The noise and lack of privacy are the greatest obstacle to doing formal meditation practice in prison. From 7 a.m. to 11 p.m., the prison's overcrowded living areas are in an almost constant uproar. 
To practice during these hours, I used to clean out one of the sanitation closets where the mops, brooms, and trash barrels are kept and uh, take a chair and sit for an hour or two. People thought I was a little strange sitting in the trash closet, but they got used to me being in there. Now the guards come by to count heads at 5 a.m. I, oh, I, I ended up getting a single room and I was be able to start the Nundro, the 100,000 prostration practice. And now the guards come by to count heads at 5 a.m. and they see me doing full prostrations on the floor beside my bed. So this was the second gift that Nachiketa asked. And it's really a blessing we can ask in ourselves of tending our fire, of bringing the wholeness of our being to our family, our community, to this world in whatever way needs it. Now you get one more wish. What would you ask for? My grandson, I was telling him this story, one of my grandchildren, the, this story this evening. And he said, oh, I'd wish for a hundred more wishes, of course, right? <laughs> like every wise kid. But Death said, no, no, you get one more wish. What would it be? And Nachiketa looked back into the eyes of the Lord of Death and said, my last wish is for the boon of immortality. And Death looked at him and said, are you sure? Remember, this is your last wish. Look at what you could have. And he showed him through his imagination maidens, you know, the sense pleasures of all possibilities, chariots, Ferraris, Maseratis, you know, you name it, whatever it was, the best chariots of the day, castles, you could be a prince, a king, you know, all these possibilities. What do you want? I mean, everything of the world is there for you all the temptations, basically. And we have our temptations, don't we? That kind of distract us from what our, our soul purpose, our spiritual purpose, is really about. And Nachiketa said, Ferrari, you know, Maserati, all the things that you could give me, all the possibilities that are things that I could have, and so forth, a castle. And all that. He said, I have a question for you looking back in the eyes of Lord Yama. Will not all these things soon enough return to your realm? And the king of death said, hmm, this is a wise kid. Yes, indeed they will, he said. That is true. And Nachiketa said, then I ask for the boon of immortality. Lord Yama said, I cannot grant this to you in the way that you think, but I will give it to you in this fashion. And he turned around, went away, and came back with a gift for Nachiketa. And he placed into Nachiketa's hand a mirror and said, if you look into this mirror and ask the question, who am I? Who am I really? you will discover the secret of immortality. I remember, I, I've told this story many times here, we have on the East Coast an annual three-month retreat where uh, people come as they do in the winter. It's spring here at Spirit Rock. and the East Coast, it's in the fall. For three months here, people come for two months. And 
So we had about a hundred people sitting on retreat for three months, silent. And at the end of the retreat, we'll often have a visiting teacher who will come. And one particular year, it was Kusan, Nine Mountains, this great uh, Zen master from Korea, quite compelling figure in his Zen robes and his staff and so forth. And he sat up in front, and here are all these people who've been mostly silent for three months and paying attention to their breath and watching the rise and fall of all their experience and resting in that mindfulness. And he looked at them and he'd been told what practice they were doing. And he said, you're practicing mindfulness. No good. <laughs> this will not get you enlightened. You know, people's heart fell a little bit in that moment. Oh my God, three months of this. And he's telling me, he said, this will not awaken you. Only thing, and he grabbed his stick and kind of banged it on the floor. Only thing, you must ask, what is this? What is this? Who is this? What is this? You must ask, who is this? Then you will see. So this really was um, the mirror that was given to Nachiketa by Lord Yama, by the king of death, was this question. Who are you? Are you this body, the food body, you know, made of tacos and, you know, <laughs> martinis and asparagus and stuff like that? I don't think so, right? Well, then, am I my feelings? They keep changing, though. That's really difficult. Sad, happy, anxious, agitated, you know, appreciative in one moment. You have a feeling, and later the feelings change, the opposite. Well, then, I'm my thoughts. <laughs> you know, they're even slipperier, aren't they? So who are we really? What does it mean to look into the mirror and see ourselves deeply? Wavy Gravy, my good friend, who is being one of the benefactors of this ball um, uh, that's coming up, our, our benefit ball, um, tells a story, you know, he, he gets in his clown outfit uh, and he works in hospitals a lot, um, and children's units primarily, and he said, there I was in the hospital, you know, blowing bubbles and hitting the kids with riddles and doing all these things and working with these kids in these different wards, and then he said, um, I was making my rounds at, and there was one room I couldn't see in, and they said, oh, that's the burn unit, and there was a, in the room these chrome kind of crib beds with burned children in it. There was this one little black kid in one of them, horribly burned. He looked like burnt toast. Pieces of his face weren't there. Pieces of his ears were missing. Where was his mouth? You could hardly tell who he was. There was no way of pinning a person onto this face. It was mind-boggling, terrible. My jaw dropped. I became completely unglued. I remembered these pictures from the anti-war movement, but here was it in front of me, and I was overwhelmed. What's going to happen if he lives? What would this be like if I had a child this happened to? What if this happened to me? So there we were, burnt toast, an unglued clown. <laughs> and all of a sudden, this other little kid comes whizzing by, skating along with his IV pole, and he stops, pushes around me, looks into the crib at this other kid, and comes out with, hey, you ugly. Just like that. And the burnt kid made this gurgling laugh kind of noise. And his face moved around. And all of a sudden, I just saw his eyes. And we locked up right there. 
and everything else dissolved. It was like going through a tunnel of darkness right to his heart, and all the burnt flesh disappeared, and I saw him from that other place. And he probably knows he's ugly more than anyone else. And if he's got to deal with people hanging around with saliva coming out of their mouth, it's going to be extra horrible. But what if somebody just says, hey, what's happening? What do you think? What if somebody looks him in the eye and remembers who he really is? So this is really the deepest spiritual question. Here we come into this incarnation, and you go through all these experiences. I talked about it over these past weeks. You look in the mirror, and you see yourself getting older, right? But you don't feel older, because it's only your body that gets older. But the mind doesn't exist in time the way the body does. So that doesn't feel older, um, because the true nature of mind and consciousness is timeless. It is outside of the realm of time. And looking in the mirror means beginning to inquire really deeply, who is it that is born into this life? If I am not this body, or these emotions, or these conditioned thoughts that keep changing, and these perceptions, who am I? Maybe I'm the one who perceives all this, the the witness to it all. But if you start to look, it actually gets a little scary, like who's in there, you know? It feels like, well, wait a second, I don't even know who's in there. And you look more fully, who is it that's listening to these words as I sit up here? You turn your attention to look. You can't exactly figure it out at first. Well, I don't know. It's actually a very good place to start. It's called don't know mind. You think you know who you are, and then you realize, I don't know, really. What is here? There is a space of awareness and knowing that you can't hold on to or grasp or say, this is me, and yet there is this mysterious quality of knowing that there when you wake up and tie your shoes and eat your breakfast and go to pee, you know, and you know, go out and take a walk and have a bad conversation with somebody and then think about it and try forgiveness and fail or succeed or whatever. It's there for all that. This, who is it that is experiencing all these experiences? A person came up to the Buddha and said, you are a Buddha, is that right? The Buddha said, indeed I am. Then how can I abide, how can a human being abide so as not to be seen by the king of death. The same story in a different fashion. And the Buddha answers, one who abides taking nothing as I or me or mine, not grasping body, feelings, perceptions, thoughts, consciousness as I or me or mine, one who abides in selflessness will not be seen by the king of death. And so we begin to sit, and this isn't just some philosophical experience. We begin to sit, and there's an invitation to open to what is unconditioned, which is absolutely free in you. They can do stuff to your body. They can do stuff to your feelings and so forth. They can't touch who you really are. And it's what the men in San Quentin that I work with have understood. That there, or what Nelson Mandela found in 27 years in prison in Robben Island, that there are outer changing conditions and there is that which is inviolable, untouchable, the unconditioned. 
And this is our own true nature, our pure awareness that knows all of this, but is never stained and never limited and never harmed by any of the experiences that come and go. My teacher Nisargadat put it this way. He said, you know yourselves through the senses. You take yourself to be what they suggest, your sights and sounds and so forth. To myself, I'm neither perceivable nor describable. There's nothing I can point to and say, this I am. You identify with everything so easily. Your feelings, your point of view, your body. For me, this is impossible. For wisdom sees I am nothing. And love sees I am everything. Between these two, my life flows. I am nothing, and I am everything. And so this was the gift that the Lord of Death gave to Nachiketa, to sit and sense the dance of your life, which seems to take forever when you're in the dentist office, right? And then all of a sudden you find you're 60 years old. How did it happen? You know, or 70 or 80 or whatever. It goes like that, at the same way. I mean, time is so strange. Remember that thing from Einstein where he says when you sit um, uh, next to a pretty girl on a bench, um, 10 minutes can feel, um, I mean, two hours can feel like 10 minutes. But when you sit on a hot stove, you know, 10 minutes can feel like two hours. That's relativity, right? <laughs> time, time is created by our thoughts about the experience. But what is it that witnesses and knows experience? This is where we can return, our own true nature, our Buddha nature, the space of awareness itself. And this was the invitation. As Rumi says, I lived for a hundred million years as a mineral and died and was born as a vegetable for another hundred million years. And then I lived for a hundred million years as an animal and died and was born as human for millions of years. What have I ever lost by dying? Things come and they go, but underneath is this secret beauty, is Thomas Merton's phrase, is the one who knows all this experience. And in India, it's said that when you go to a teacher, I think of Ramana Maharshi as sort of the exemplar of this, because he taught with very few words, he would just look people in the eye and see them, not their outer form or their personality, spare you your personality, right? Or their ideas about things, but that secret beauty, that who you really are, and just love you. And people felt, oh, finally, I have been really seen. Now I remember who I am. One more little story. When the Buddha was struggling to be enlightened, to get enlightened as a, as a yogi in India and an ascetic and doing all these difficult practices, he tried to fight against his desires and body and fasted and did all these ascetic practices and got, um, you know, lo- um, became uh, famished and, and uh, emaciated and, and um, still wasn't able to do it. And at one point, he felt like, all right, I've done everything I can to try to get myself free of the entanglements of this body and mind by struggling against them. And he was lying there, nearly dead, as the story is told. And then a memory came to him. 
And the memory was of being a boy, seven years old, in his father's garden during the plowing, the spring plowing ceremony. And he said, I was there seated under a rose apple tree, just observing this beautiful spring morning, and all unbidden there came in me a sense of wholeness and beauty and connectedness and emptiness that was the reality of this life. The small, separate sense of myself just dropped away, and I knew that I was a part of everything. And he had this memory, and he said, hmm, maybe I've been practicing in the wrong way for all these years, six years of ascetic practice and yogic struggle and so forth. And that insight stopped him, and he began to take food again and nourish himself, and that, was, that led him in the course of the next number of weeks to sit, sit under the Bodhi tree and, and become the Buddha, become enlightened. And in that beautiful moment, he shifted from the struggle against what he thought was right and wrong in his life and returned under the, uh, under the rose apple tree to rest in his true nature. And this is the invitation of the story of Nachiketa to you to return to that which witnesses all things, the timeless, the silence that surrounds all things, the unborn in you, that which is fearless. Even when fear comes, you say, oh, that's just fear. That has nothing to do with me. And Nachiketa found it, and he was so happy. He said, thank you, and he bowed to the Lord of death. And now, it's time for Nachiketa to do the next thing. And my question for you is, what is Nachiketa to do next? All right, now he's realized his true nature. He's realized that he's free no matter what happens. He can be free anywhere. He's realized the heart of forgiveness and compassion. He's fully present. Now he's free. What do you do at that point? Hmm? The laundry, yes. After the laundry, the laundry. Yes, right. And then the dishes, yeah. So Nachiketa sat there, awakened in this great silence, saw all of life appear and disappear, and knew that he was a part of it. The great dance. As Kalu Rinpoche says, you live in illusion and the appearance of things. There is a reality, but you do not know this. You forget it. When you remember, when you understand, you will see that you are nothing. And being nothing, you are everything. That is all. So here was Nachiketa resting in the center of the, of, of the, the universe of life, seeing appearances. You know, yes, it comes in this form of his body, in that form, but that's not who we really are. And then it was time for Nachiketa to return. But how did he return and why? It's a beautiful passage by Black Elk, medicine man from the Ogallala, Ogallala Sioux, who writes about his mystic vision. He says, then I was standing on the highest mountain of all, which I think was called Harney Peak, right? And round about me, beneath me, was the whole circle of the world, and while I stood there, I saw more than I can tell and understood more than I saw, for I was seeing in a sacred manner 
the shape of all things in the spirit and the shape of all shapes as they must live together as one being. And I saw the sacred hoop of my people was one of the many circles, one of the many hoops that made one circle wide as daylight and as starlight. And in the center grew one mighty flowering tree to shelter all the children of one mother and one father. And I saw that it was holy. But you must remember that anywhere is the center of the world. Anywhere is holy ground. And so it turns out, when it was time for Nachiketa to return, he didn't have to return. Because when he remembered who he really was, when he was awakened, he discovered that not one step had ever taken him away from where he was, that every place is holy ground. Or as Zen Master Dogen says, are you looking for liberation? It is nearer than near. Or the poet Kabir, are you looking for me? I am in the next seat. My shoulder is against yours. And every moment of forgiveness and compassion, every moment of fullness of presence, every moment of remembering that we're in this dance for only a little while in this form, and returning to who we really are, to the witnessing of it all, is a moment of liberation, is a gift, is a way of moving through the world with bliss-bestowing hands, it says. And Gandhi says, I believe in the essential unity of all that lives, and therefore I believe that if one person gains, the whole world gains to that extent, and if one person falls, the whole world falls to that extent. And Nachiketa awoke where he was, and the fields were green with the new-growing rice of the springtime, and he walked back, grateful to be alive in this time, full of forgiveness and presence and the great wise heart of a Buddha, to see his father and return to the life that he had left. From Rumi, the last poem. Forget the world and so be a gift in the world. Be a lamp, a lifeboat, a ladder. Help heal someone's soul. Walk out of your house like a shepherd. Stay in the spiritual fire, let it cook you. Be a well-baked loaf and lord of the table and come and be served to your brothers and sisters. You've been a source of pain at times. Now you become the source of delight. Enough words. A mouth is not for talking. A mouth is for tasting this sweetness we share. And Nachiketa, full of the sweetness, came back to offer his blessings, the liberation that came from his initiation to all he touched. So let's sit for just a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.